you know, we just don't live in a world where it's okay to talk about this stuff. And, it, and we don't live in a world where it's okay to do this kind of work. No. And it's unfortunate because there's a lot of healing that can happen through the heart. And we just, we're just not really taught how to love. Hey, lovebirds. Today, we're doing something different. I'm going to be airing my interview with the host of the How to Human podcast, Sam Lamott. Sam's also a friend, and so it's a pleasure to be able to talk to him and to share a microphone with him. And what we're talking about today is the origin story of the love drive. So if you are curious about how I came to be doing this work and how the podcast essentially started in the back of a San Francisco taxi cab and the circuitous journey that took me here. You're going to probably enjoy this episode. And what starts as an origin story morphs into two open, vulnerable men talking intimately about sexual shame, how hard it is to love, and how to move forward in a space that is often not well-defined and in which we don't have role models to show us where to go with grace, respect, and love. I'm grateful for Sam. And he's a friend, he's a colleague, and he's also an inspiration. His podcast is extremely well-produced. His intros, I am frankly very envious of. This particular intro, though, is different than a lot of the ones that he usually makes because he was going through it at this point around New Year's of this past year, 2018. Sam lost his father, and he released this episode just after that. And so his introduction to our episode reflects the state of mind that he was in. And that's what I love about Sam. He's raw, he's honest, he's vulnerable. And I am honored to be able to share this episode with you all. My name is Sean Galanos. This is The Love Drive airing an episode of the How to Human podcast with Sam Lamont. Hey, everyone. Thank you for your patience in between episodes. My dad's health took an unexpected turn, and... Um, I was doing everything I could to get up to Canada where he lives, and he ended up passing away 14 days ago, uh, one day before I could get there. And I ended up bringing the recording equipment and going anyway and talking to his late wife and his best friends and flew down to Seattle and talked to my half-brother and sister. Who, and so I'm not sure if this is for a public piece or if it's just something I'm doing for myself, but... 
I had to kind of go on my own little journey and process this grief in my own way. And, you know, besides the the loss and the realization that, you know, that's that's the end of my father and I's relationship and we're never going to build this, I don't know, father-son relationship that I was hoping we would. Um, there's something really ugly that came up too, which is, you know, I was just starting to feel kind of like my old self before the heartbreak where I'm this doer and this prolific creator and I'm going to get the book written and produce all this great art and build this company. And it was all coming back. I mean, really, I was super pumped. And it just, this felt so deflating, so crushingly deflating. And my first thought was, you're never going to be that guy who gets the podcast out on time and who can build this company and who can write that book and who can get these things done and be a prolific creator. There's always going to be heartbreak. There's always going to be loss or an unexpected bill or depression or something. And you're just this debilitated human. (sighs) And it's not true. What is true is that I am learning how to be a disciplined artist. What is true is that I'm learning how to live in a way that is fulfilling and healthy and find a way to produce work without abusing myself or without torturing myself or telling myself that it's just not worth anything. I'm learning these things. And you're following my journey doing that. And you're possibly on your own journey of doing that. And what I want to say to any of you who feel in that particular way is a line I say, which is, Being unstoppable has nothing to do with speed. You think the word's unstoppable and you think of this speeding locomotive or this flying bullet through the air with all this inertia behind it. But really, being unstoppable means not stopping, no matter what. And I have dreams of being a creative runner who creates prolifically and quickly and constantly on a beautiful schedule, but I'm learning to crawl and I've gotten quite good at it because there are many times this program has been going on for a year and a half. There are so many times that I've wanted to quit and I just haven't. And every single time I come back into myself, I'm so glad that I didn't quit because when I look in the mirror these days, I see a survivor. I see someone that's still going And my hope for you is that you keep going with whatever your heart is nudging you to do, whether it's creative or, um, you know, in relationship or as a parent or whatever your heart is screaming for you to do. I hope you keep moving in that direction, even if it's unpleasantly slow and much slower than you want it to. Which brings us to today's guest, who's Sean Galanos, and he's the founder of a company project called The Love Drive, which is all about building intimate and fun and more meaningful relationships. And he's a creative friend of mine. We try to talk weekly. We try to keep each other going. We confront our own envy of each other. We both have different strengths. Sean has gotten the discipline of producing very constantly down. 
And he's somebody who I look up to in many ways and we're friends. And if you're on any journey, you need some people to do it with. And he's one of the people I get to do it with. And we, I'm so glad to, to get to know him. And I'm glad that we found time to sit down and have this conversation. And so, you know, coming back into the swing of the podcast thing, this is the conversation I wanted to produce. It's not, uh, so much self-help it's more just like two friends really talking and me getting to know him better and more intimately and us talking about where we're at and so i hope you enjoy it you can always check out more of sean at thelovedrive.com or he's on all the social media i'll post it all in the note descriptions but here is my conversation with a wonderful creator and a dear friend sean galanos Hey, man, we're doing the best we can with what we got. At least we're not recording on a Blue Yeti. That's true. This is the first podcast I've done in this house. Oh, good. Yeah. We're at my place, everybody, with Sean Galanos. That's right. Hey, Sean. Hey there, Sam. So I already know you really well. And so I want to... I'm going to start over. Fuck that. Hey, Sam. Hey, Sean. (laughs) Take two of the intro. Take two of the intro. So I already know you. We're in my house. But for the sake of the program, this can be as big or as small of a question as you would like. But who are you? Have you ever inter- uh, interviewed friends before? No. Oh. Yeah. yeah. My name is Sean Galanos. <laughs> I am one of Sam's friends. I'm also the host of the Love Drive podcast and a certified love advisor. And that's all I'm going to say right now. Okay. So we met through recovery. Yeah, we met in And without knowing you very well, you let me spray paint your truck. Yeah. And then we didn't talk too much after that. But what happened is we, we somehow became Facebook friends. Yeah. And on my Facebook page, the love drive started popping up, which was the first project, you, first creative project you did that I was aware of and what you're still doing. It was first creative project that I've ever really done. I actually didn't consider myself a creative or an artist ever until the love drive. And even years into the love drive, it took me a while to realize that, oh, this is actually, this is a creative endeavor. This is art. It's also helpful, but it's also to a certain degree, it's art. And that's like why it's wild because forever, I just never thought that I had a creative bone in my body. If we could back up before the love drive, because I want to talk about it. I think that's going to take the majority of the conversation. But can you tell us a little bit of how you got there, how you got to the start, and then we can just go go from there? Yeah, I was uh, I was born in Canada, born in Montreal, and we moved to the states with my family when I was younger, and we moved to California. And um, I got a job in a tech company. Actually, I used to work at I used to work at Google because I went into uh, for a job interview at a temp agency because I wanted to be a video game tester (laughs) because I was such a stoner. I was like a stoner, kind of like a bit of a loser. You know, I was a, I was, I was drug addict and an alcoholic, but I was keeping it together. And I went into this uh, agency to fill out, to fill out an application to be a video game tester. Turns out 
you need to have completed video games. I had never completed a video game in my life. And <laughs> on the application, it was like, list the 10 last video games that you'd completed. And I couldn't even fill that in. And I was like, oh, this isn't, this isn't going well. This is not going well. And I had just graduated from university. And I overheard them. Uh, somebody was talking about a job at Google. And I just said like, oh, I'll apply for that. And they go, well, that's not how it works. You can't just like raise your hand for a job. But long story short, I got that job. And I worked at Google for three months until I got fired for sending a personal email to 1,300 employees accidentally. Can we? What was the nature? This is right out of college. Like literally, I graduated on a Monday, and on Friday I was working at Google. And three months later, I was fired from Google. At 22 years old, I thought my life was over. I really did because I thought I had like hit the pinnacle at 22. The email was it was just a personal email that I had sent to a friend that had a bunch of f bombs in it, and it was talking about their on site oil change service it was It was like nothing it was really benign, but it had f bombs and I was a contractor, and the people that I worked with, a bunch of ladies in h r didn't like me, and so I was gone ten minutes later. I was literally out the door, and I took a lava lamp on the way out. <laughs> Okay. As a fuck you to Google. Do you still have it? I don't. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It, it didn't make the last couple moves. And what's interesting about that is that the next morning I woke up and I made finding a job, my full-time job, which for someone who's 22 years old, like that doesn't make any sense. But I got up, I showered, <laughs> I put my work clothes on and I went to my computer. And a week later, I was working at Yahoo. And uh, the boss there... He said, you know, why why did you leave Google? And I told him the story, you know, because I, I don't lie. I don't like lying. And so I didn't lie. And he said, he said, uh, okay, well, are you gonna do that here? And I said, I, <laughs> I go, no, I don't send emails anymore. And uh, and and I got hired that day, like on the spot, literally. And he put me in the cube right next to him so that he can just keep an eye on me. And and then I worked. That's where I worked for five years. I worked at Yahoo for five years. Um, I became uh, like a sales person, and I really enjoyed that. At some point in all that, I got sober at twenty five, which is around when we met, which is about ten years ago. We sort of met maybe like maybe eight or nine years ago. Um, I got sober and I quickly realized that I didn't want to work doing that job anymore. The job felt... Uh, the best way I can explain it is that my soul felt like a little raisin. It was like a little dried up little raisin. Yeah, I don't want to just say it's sobriety, but when when you cut out things that help you numb the pain or escape, man... Everything looks different. Yeah. That job you like looked different. The relationship you like looks different. It's weird. I mean, that was, that was my case for sobriety too. So I had that moment. What the fuck am I doing? It's interesting because in like anything in life, there are pros and cons. And that job gave me good money. It I had, I felt a sense of purpose. Safety. Safety. I had friends. I had benefits. I had a place to go every day. And it was a great job because when I was drinking, I didn't have to spend too much time doing it because I was really good at it. And so I could focus on being drunk and or hungover. And then when I got sober, I, I didn't have to spend too much time doing it so I could focus on my recovery. But then when I recovered, I realized I don't know what I want to do, but this this isn't it. I haven't been that guy that like has known that I needed to do this thing. You know, I, I don't there are some people that just 
they they know what their purpose is. And at that point, I didn't know what it was. I just knew what it wasn't. And I had to leave. I, I just... I, I had to leave and I left money on the table. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And, and ultimately, now in hindsight, I know that it was the right move. But for a while, I sort of doubted it. You know, it's it's hard to know if you're making the right decision. I had the same feeling where I had the best possible job I could have for myself working for someone else, which was it was this place called Tech Shop, which is no more, but it had tools that I could use for my sculpture. I had access to tools. It had, it, I mean, literally the place was like my congregation. You know, I loved everybody there and I wasn't happy, but I didn't leave. I actually got let go because the company started to go under and I was just a round of layoffs. But I, I worked there pretty unfulfilled for a year. I worked there unfulfilled in a fulfilling place to work. I worked for three years at Yahoo unfulfilled. And so you leave. Yeah. Yahoo wasn't going to go out of business. It wasn't going out of business. It It's just, it's like the money was so good. Yeah. And people were saying, you're an idiot to leave without having another job. But I was in a situation where I could leave and I had enough savings that it would, it would last me for a little bit so that I can actually figure out what it is that I wanted to do. So I left and uh, I did all sorts of shit, man. I, I went traveling. I ended up in Panama City, Panama, not Florida, and uh, running a hostel for overland and motorcycle travelers, basically people who ride there the, who who like travel overland from the United States all the way down to sleep in the trucks and stuff, sleeping in their trucks and their rooftop tents and their hammocks. And when they get to Panama, the road ends essentially. You have to you can't cross from Panama to Colombia by land. There's something called the Darien Gap. There's a lot of like narco traffickers. There's weird relationships relationships between those two countries. And so we built a hostel that would help people make that crossing, which have happens either via plane or by boat. So I ended up in Panama n- not having spoken, like I didn't know any Spanish, right? So I learned that along the way. That took me down to South America for a year on a motorcycle. And after, you know, several years on the road, I was just like done, you know, I wanted to come back. And also my money, I ran out of money, which is a good reason to come back, I guess. And I found myself in San Francisco broke. And this is not a good city. It's not a good city to be broken. No. Being broke sucks. Being broke in San Francisco is, is challenging. So I was out to dinner with a bunch of people on a Friday night. And this really cool guy with tattoos everywhere and a leather jacket got up in the middle of dinner and he goes, I got to go to work. And I go, oh, what line of work are you in? He goes, I drive a cab. And for some reason, it was like the coolest thing i had ever seen. You know, Clint, you remember Clint? No, I thought you were talking about Dave. Dave. He's got a dolphin tattoo on his calf. Uh, driving a taxi. Right. So all those guys were driving taxis. Okay. And yeah. I was like, these guys are so cool. They got tats. They got leather jackets. They're driving cab in San Francisco. And I go, oh, that's what I'm going to do. Because I needed money bad, like really bad. And so I went to taxi school. This was before. This was like at the beginning of Lyft and, Lyft and Uber. And so in order to get a taxi, um, not a medallion, but a license, you had to go to cab school. And it was just like, it was terrible. It was like in a, in like, uh, you know, those, 
in schools when they then they like they have to expand the school, but they they just put up those like trailers. <laughs> <laughs> it was in one of those in the back of a yellow cab, like the the dispatch yard. Like it was very depressing. Oh, it's not like the the royal taxis in England. No, we have to like know every street. So there was a test like that. But you only had to know like ten hotels. Oh, cool! Yeah. And and you had to figure out which, like, you had to know which streets went up and which streets went down. You know, on the one ways, it was a really basic test. But I got I got it, and I, and I still have it. It's like a little like it's sort of a medallion. It's a nice little medallion with like it says taxi driver on it and and my number. It's a sheriff badge. It's a little sheriff badge. Yeah, it's a little sheriff badge. I've never seen a taxi driver wear one. You don't get in. He's like wearing his little <laughs> badge, his taxi driver badge. And so I started driving cab and, and it was actually really lucrative for a while. More lucrative than anything I was that I could do right away that didn't involve going back into technology. And I just didn't really want to do that anymore. I didn't feel like those were my people. And I didn't feel like it was something that was I was interested in or that was going to provide value. Like I know that these technology companies and these app companies, like they provide some of them provide value, but I wasn't interested in it. I couldn't see it, so I drove a cab, which is super fun. It was like playing a video game at that time, and you're just racing other cabbies around San Francisco, driving way too fast, sometimes blowing lights, trying to find your next fare. I mean, we weren't even like using the computer. It was literally just driving around, hitting all the hot spots and like trying to beat some other dude. It's really fun. But the only way to make money is that you have to drive for 12 hours nonstop. And like nonstop. I mean, no breaks. I was like peeing in the street. I was eating while driving. You know, I would make my little salad and my pasta and I would just like drive and eat and pee in the street and drive nonstop for 12 hours. It's the only way to really make money driving a cab at that time. And I was working Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night from 5 p.m. to 3 a.m. And I just turned into a zombie. It was just like a really challenging time to be awake. And then on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, I would try to be a normal person. And it was just like really rough. And driving a cab got super boring. It got boring It got and it got challenging. And it was I hurt my body and... People were disrespectful, and it's just, it's a tough job. So I was getting bored, but I needed the money. And my friend said, You know, why don't you record the conversations that you're having with your fairs? And I've always been someone that has wanted to talk about sex and love, always. I've always been sort of like an unofficial advisor to my friends. And it's something that I have like a bottomless well of energy and passion for. And so when she said, why don't you record your conversations? I thought, oh, why don't I make it like Taxi Cab Confession meets Love Line with Dr. Drew and Adam Carolla? And so that's what I did. I like sort of figured out what I had to do to make that happen. I got GoPros. I got you know, a Zoom recorder that I'm still using for my podcast today. And I got some microphones and I rigged up this setup that Every day I would get the cab, I'd drive it home real quick, I'd run upstairs and I would I would like slam this setup into the back of the cab, which was lights that went out that attached to the back of the headrests, cameras that were on clamps and microphones, and I had like a little, you know, some remote controls in the console. And people would get in 
And I'd say, Welcome to the Love Drive, which was the name that I sort of picked. It took like months to find the right name. <laughs> Welcome to the Love Drive. And then I'd hand him a stack of cards. And on the cards would be a bunch of questions. And some people were super stoked. And some people were horrified. And some people just didn't want to play my game. And that, I mean, that is the beginning of the Love Drive. So that was 2014 in San Francisco, driving a cab, interviewing people about sex, love, dating, romance, relationships in the back of a cab. Was it legal? I don't know. Not, but I know you got releases from the people in the cab company, but I was, or from the people in the cab, but was that like, was the cab company cool? Well, I, the cab company didn't know about it. And just recently, someone got in real big trouble because they were live streaming uh, Uber, you know, the video feed from Uber onto Twitch that that like live streaming yeah. video game site, and got into got into a lot of trouble. And then now they've you know the the transportation network companies, what are those? Lyft and Ubers, what are those? ride share companies, now have it in their language that it's illegal to broadcast or publish any of the video that you record in the cab, but you can still record for safety reasons. Yeah, of course. So I don't know. I didn't ask them. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. So when I first saw it pop up, it's interesting because for me looking on the outside, you're always this kind of good looking guy who's really confident. It just seemed like, oh, everything comes so easy to you. You know, that's kind of like the, the feeling I got. And then on Facebook, this, the love drive start, starts popping up and it's, it's so cool. And my first reaction was like, kind of a hater, you know, like, if I'm going to be honest with myself, like I watched, I like spite watched them. <laughs> this is great. And it just won me over. There's something that I saw in your belief in yourself that you would do this, that you would broadcast this on Facebook where everybody could judge you because you had to host it, right? You had to be the face of this thing. And it was something that I could never imagine myself doing. It felt like I want to have that skill. Just you standing up there because there's, there's something when you don't know someone and you see them on the YouTube channel, you just assume, okay, that's who that person is. But when you know someone and you see them broadcasting themselves, there's something like different about it. There's something interesting that happens when you have to see somebody you know going for it. I think that's why my first reaction was cynical or hater-y, is that it's like, you know, you see somebody going for their dream around you that you know. It makes you think about yourself. And if you're not going, you know, now that I do how to human, whether it's a success or failure, um, I've noticed that when people tell me what they're up to, I have, it, it hurts me less, <laughs> if that makes sense. I'm less threatened by it. And of course, you and me talk often. We talk about envy. We talk about getting envious of each other. And that's a real part of it, but it goes lower when you're still doing it as opposed to when you're, when I wasn't doing anything creative and I saw people doing things creative, it was just painful. It was painful to, to listen to when there were people I knew. I just read this thing that's like, the only people that hate on you are people that are doing less. People that are doing more don't have time for that shit. Yeah. You know? And so I try to remember that, but 
what you were doing four years ago was you were comparing your insides to my outsides because I am still racked with self-doubt four years later. I'm still fearful of what people think of me. I'm still... like I, I might project an outward appearance of confidence, but you know, inside I'm still scared. And I, and, and I still do the work regardless of how I feel about it or how scared I am or how, you know, fearful I am of what people are going to say about it. And what's challenging about sex and love is that, man, people don't share that shit because, well, people don't, they don't share sex stuff because it's, you know, there's still, it's still, there's still a lot of shame around it. Or they, even if they enjoyed something, they don't want to show other people that maybe they got something out of it, which means that they were deficient in some way. And so the struggle of the love drive has been just like intensified by the fact that like the subject matter is just mired in shame. And so there's the subject matter and there's the fact that the putting yourself out there is incredibly challenging. I mean, it's incredibly vulnerable and you have to open yourself up. But this is the path that we chose. You know, I could have easily have gone back to technology and I, I tried and actually failed, but I could have picked a safer path and you could have as well. One of the things people are often interested in when it comes to you is what qualifies you. What is your history with sex and with shame and finding healthy sex and um, finding healthy or unhealthy relationships? What defined you as somebody who wanted to know more about the subject? What were the big moments? I don't know, man. I was just like really promiscuous growing up. It's just that was one of the ways that I like to connect with women. That's, that's it. Like I, I just really wanted to connect with them in a sexual way from a very young age. And I stopped counting my partners when I got to 36 in college. And I was like, okay, that's it. It's over. I'm not going to count anymore. And some people are more sexual than others. And some people have a deeper capacity to love. And some people, you know, we're born with these like innate skills and or areas of interest. And for me, like financial management, not one of my areas of interest. Like I, I would love to know more about it so I could set myself up for the future. But for some reason, I got this passion for sex and love. Like bottomless well of energy. I can literally talk about it all day long. I'm, I'm passionate about it. I want to know what makes people tick. I want to understand why we feel shame about certain behaviors. I want to know all the things that people do in case maybe that's something that I want to do. Or maybe I can talk about it and it's going to help somebody else. And also at some point I realized that like people really struggle when it comes to sex and love. Like just really struggle. And for me, it sort of wasn't hasn't been a struggle. Like my struggle now is totally. I, I struggle with love in terms of like finding a partner because I'm 36 and I really want a partner and I haven't, I've been single for a while now. So there's always a struggle, but I, I've seen people struggle for just more basic stuff in that it pains me so much to see that, you know, there's a lot of heartache out there and there's a lot of unrealized desires that, that could be realized if people learned how to communicate more effectively around their desires and their needs. So you know, in my podcast now, 
I do various different forms of... I do interviews with experts. Uh, soon I'm going to be doing real love stories where I just interview people about their love life. And then I also do free love advice, which is sort of the next love drive, right? Yeah. Like the, the next taxi cab version where I set up on a street with a little sign that says free love advice and my microphones and I, and I wait patiently for people to come and sit next to me. And I'm always blown away by the courage that, that people show when they just come and sit on this little stool that I have and, and they just like bear it all for me. And it's beautiful. But also there's a lot of people that come up to me and they go, what makes you qualified? Like they demand to know what my qualifications are. And often people say, are you a therapist? Or are you a sexologist? Or are you a psychologist? Because those are the things that historically make you quote unquote qualified to give love advice. When in reality, like, I don't know if those people have ever been in therapy because my therapist, first of all, it's not free and she doesn't give any advice. <laughs> Like it's not what I'm doing isn't therapy. It's like I'm listening to what's going on and then I'm giving you some opinion based on the years of experience that I have, the bottomless well of passion and some of the shit that I've gone through in my life and some of the you know, I've 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 done some things that that give me a unique set of experiences. And and with that I can share that with other people. What are the experiences that you draw from? the ones that really helped shape you? When people ask me what makes you qualified, sometimes I just have like a quick answer. You know, I'll go, I have a bottomless well for bottomless well of energy for sex and love. I've been a rape crisis counselor on a hotline here in, in Oakland. And I used to give erotic massage massages to women. And people are like, Oh, okay. Okay. That makes you certainly qualified in certain aspects. And so, in my life, I've done some things that, that are like a little non-traditional because when I was driving the cab, I was getting tired and I was getting, I was just like, just tired of driving. It's just such a grind. Um, even though I was having fulfilling conversations, it's still a grind. And it's, yeah. and it's so hard to ask people like, Hey, can I record you so that we can, and can I record you talking about like really personal stuff? And often, most of the times they said, no, I mean, there's, it's just like, I've been getting no's for so long, I've gotten just really used to it, you know? And at some point I decided, oh, I want to go, I want to go back to work because all my friends had like new MacBooks and they were working at tech companies and they had lunches and a hundred dollars worth of Kindle books per month and like all these perks. They were working in like tech playland and I, I wanted tech playland. So I decided to uh, go back to, to work. And I like revamped my resume and uh, I got some job interviews and I thought I had knocked one out of the park. I mean, I was just, I was so stoked and it was with GitHub and GitHub just got bought by Microsoft. And if I had gotten hired, I'd be like a multimillionaire right now. <laughs> and I, and I, I, I did, the interview was just like, it was, it was really good. You nailed it. And nailed it. And then I got feedback saying that unfortunately I wasn't a good fit for the position. That was sort of the the you know the the email I got back from HR. But my buddy worked there at the time and he got the real story which is that they went online and they saw all the stuff that I put up. The love drive? Yeah. Yeah. All the articles that I had written, the blog posts, the videos. 
And basically what they said was, uh, we think that Sean is a risk and that he's going to hit on the employees and the clients. So essentially I was labeled a sexual predator. But none of this shit came out during the interview. It's not like I was hitting on <laughs> anyone in the interview. I was 100% professional. And you know, I had a lot of sales experience. And I, was, I thought I was a great fit for the job. No flirting? No Zero flirting. flirting. You're a big flirt. I'm a huge flirt. Yeah. Zero flirting. I mean, maybe it's impossible for me not to flirt. Maybe that's, you know, maybe there was a little bit of flirting, but it certainly wasn't inappropriate and it wasn't sexual in nature in any way, shape or form. And that really threw me for a loop. You know, I mean, basically this company was saying that I am unemployable, that because of the stuff that I've done, even though all of it is sex positive, every single piece out there is sex positive. They've said, this isn't something, this isn't a risk that we're willing to take. And I understand their position. I mean, they actually had had, had a big scandal earlier in that year. And so they were very risk averse. And that really fucked me up. It really fucked me up because I was sort of, I felt like I was unemployable and that I had sort of painted myself into a weird sex corner and I wasn't going to be able to get out of it. Dude, I feel you on so many levels because I'm in the weird, depressed, suicidal corner. Yes, you are. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Okay, no, keep going. Keep going. You're, you're in a mental health corner. Yeah. That's great. We need that. And we also need people to be in the weird sex and love corner. So you get this feedback that basically it's on the internet forever. You're fucked. I had to either whitewash or go all in. Yeah. Those are my, my only two options. And so I could go and try and remove all the shit that I wrote, plus get it removed from all of these other places, like scrub social media for years, or you know just fucking own it. And I was at a party and a friend was like, oh, you know what? <laughs> this friend is that every good idea I've ever had comes from this woman. And she goes, and her name's Allie. And she goes, Sean, I think uh, that you would make a great escort. And I just looked at her like, are you like, are you kidding? Are you kidding? You know? And there was that show hitch on, I think it was on HBO or something about a a dude who runs out of money and who like starts being a, a straight male companion basically. But that's not really a thing. Like I did the research. There's no real market for straight dudes sleeping with, you know, older rich women. It's a fantasy. No, because straight dudes will do it for free. <laughs> straight dudes will do it for free. And and for the most part, the, the idea is that women can get sex when they want sex. And and that's not true, actually, at all. You don't think so? No, not at all. And I'll tell you why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but so I, I thought about this. I, I thought about this idea of like, could I be a straight male companion? How, what would that even look like? And then I, I remember that I have a lot of friends that are in the sex, that, that do sex work. And it, most of these are women that, that give erotic and sensual massage to men. And so I had this idea. I was like, why can't I do that? Why can't I give sensual massages to women? Why not? So I bought a massage table. And I went to uh, I went to Esalen on a did a weekend massage workshop (laughs) (laughs) because I didn't want to hurt anybody, you know. And I needed some like foundational skills on how to like touch bodies in a massage way. But I'd always given massages to my partners, and then I went on OkCupid, and I like 
basically propositioned a bunch of women and said, look, I'm starting to do sensual massage and I'd like to offer a free massage for you if that's something that you're interested in. And a lot of people took me up on it. And that was how I like sort of figured out like what my massage style was going to be. And then once I had a couple of those, you know, under my belt, I like built a website and I started advertising on Craigslist and I started, you know, I started massaging women in a sensual way. And I built up a practice over a year of, of like maybe a massage a day. So five or six per week. And by the way, massage pays a lot better than driving a taxi. But it's different. It's just such a different kind of work. The reason why I, th- I know that some women can't have sex when they want to is because a lot of my clients were totally lacking in touch. I mean, that's what it, 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 that's what it came down to. These are people that are either in sexless or loveless marriages or are widowed or have some form of trauma or are not conventionally attractive. And this makes up like a big portion of the female population. Yeah. And, and just to clarify, so it's not a gigolo situation. There's no sex. There's no re- reciprocity, right? There's no, re- well, technically no. It happened sometimes where there was there was like some reciprocity, but for the most part, it was me focusing on their pleasure and just giving touch. And that's why I said that it's it's different work because it was energetically it was very draining to give that kind of like erotic, sensual and sexual energy to 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 women in like a controlled manner is is like it was like depleting. I actually wasn't dating anybody for years because of of like I had no energy left to even to even date or have sex, you know, in my personal life. And so, no, I wasn't having intercourse with these, with, with these women. I wasn't having intercourse with, with my clients. I was just, you know, I I realized that, that a lot of my clients just really needed touch and they needed affection. And we're talking, you know, people that hadn't had any for years. And I can't imagine not having somebody touch me for, for years. that's actually not too far from what my life has been like for the last couple of years because I've sort of, I'm looking for a partner and I'm not interested in casual sex anymore. And so I've just sort of like retreated a little bit and isolated and, and sort of, you know, under the auspices of I'm, I'm waiting for the one, which doesn't exist, but this is a whole different conversation. What people don't realize is I knew that story about you and I didn't know if we were going to talk about it here because I don't think there's a way to capture without just explicitly saying it that you still have a ton of hesitation about that part of your life and that it's probably one of the more important parts of your story. I mean, I imagine it really shaped your emotional IQ is doing that kind of deep therapeutic behind the curtain work where, you know, it's not conversations that you would ever have. And how do you confront, most of what the love drive, I think, is is about having healthy, happy sexual experiences and love experiences, and especially in a in a world that so quickly um, can make you feel embarrassed about what you like and can make you feel ashamed about what you've done. And so, what's your work look like confronting your own shame about this topic? I mean, the older I get the more accepting I am of, of myself. I mean, and that just comes over time, but I've had a lot of shame about this work. I don't do the work anymore 
because uh, I don't have the energy for it anymore. But you know, the love drive has always been about cultivating love and building intimacy and making connections with ourselves and with others. So a lot of the work is, has been around just self-love because the more I love myself, the more I can love you. That's what I want. Like I want more connection in my life. And so in order to do that, I have to focus on myself. And, and it's not a selfish endeavor because ultimately the goal is to connect with people. You know, we just don't live in a world where it's okay to talk about this stuff. And, it, and we don't live in a world where it's okay to do this kind of work. No. And it's unfortunate because there's a lot of healing that can happen through the heart. And we just, we're just not really taught how to love. And we act like um, people get stained that like very promiscuous women or men. It's like, we let it stain them in a way. We let it stick with them. It's it's a tough call when you're talking to someone and they're like, I'm dating someone. Do I tell them? How do you, since you have personal experience with this, how do you make sense of, of talking about it when there is the reality that people judge? And I guess I'm just thinking about other people at home right now listening to this moment realizing that this is maybe the first time you publicly talked about this thinking about things maybe they haven't talked about and how do you feel about it because there is i don't know there's definitely unfortunately i think times where it's correct me if i'm wrong like there's times where it's like not appropriate like i don't want someone to it's so weird it's so weird to confront like i don't want somebody to miss out on a connection because they were asked about their sexual history and they softened it up or and they didn't soften it up. And it was hard for a guy or girl to swallow the reality of who they were before them, which in some sense is none of their business. It would be nice if that wasn't the case. I had a therapist. His name was uh, Dr. Jay Talkoff. Phenomenal man. I, I attribute a lot of the growth that I've had to this person. And one of the things that he said was that you don't have to share everything. And I'm a big fan of transparency. And I'm a big fan of being vulnerable. And I believe that rejection is God's protection in the sense that if somebody rejects me, it's, it's because that person is not right for me or that situation is not right for me. And I can just move on from it feeling clear. And at the same time, I don't need to share everything with everyone all the time, which is hard because I share a lot of stuff on my podcast. And this is one of those things that I haven't really shared. Actually, I, I mentioned it briefly and only a few people like chimed in on it, you know, mainly women that were interested in finding out if I still did massage. <laughs> and actually, that's uh, oftentimes if I, if I do talk about it, when I do bring it up, because it does come up every now and then people are just really fascinated with it. Like they want to know more about the whole process. They want to know about who the clients were and like what, what the service was. And, but I don't share everything with everybody all the time. And sometimes we can want to self-disclose more than is appropriate in order to build intimacy. And what it can do is push people away. You know, and you were talking about that, the fact that's hard to swallow. Like let's say someone asked me how many people I slept with. I actually don't think that's such a big deal. Like you don't, but some people do. 
Yeah. And so if, if, uh, if they didn't like the number that I gave them, I don't see that as a reflection on me. I see that as a reflection on them. You know, if, if there's a hard, if it's hard for them to under- easier said than done, though. I just have to believe that that person is just not right for me. Yeah, and I understand. I understand. I think what we're talking about is, you know, self-disclosing enough in order to like keep the interest going, so that we can build more of a connection, so that eventually you can disclose things that you might not disclose at the beginning, and that and that there's already a bond there, where they'll they'll see past it to who you really are. That seems so overly complicated for me. So if you point blank ask me a question, I'll say, is that really a question that you want an answer to? And if the answer is yes, I'll tell you. I have that rule about omission too. And I also had a therapist. We were, it, was, uh, it was actually in a, the custody battle. And I just really just wanted to just say everything from the get-go and let the judge judge me as he or she would. And um, the therapist just said, you know, there's real difference between um admitting and omitting and if you're asked directly be honest you know but you don't have to just purge it just for the sake of of purging and that actually came up in when um i had cheated on someone and i was talking to him about it and this is like one of the few times the therapist gave me point blank advice and I think it was not as a therapist, it was just as an ethical person. And I had cheated on somebody um, significantly. He, yeah, he, he basically just said, no, don't confess. You want to confess because you want to dump all your shame out. And you're going to walk away feeling much better. And you will have caused so much wreckage in it. If you love her, just leave. Leave come up with uh, a reason why you can't show up to this relationship because you can't, you haven't, and you probably won't because this is a skill that you're learning. He understood that I hadn't had the come to Jesus moment. It probably was going to happen again. I said, just leave. It was almost like, how, how dare you make your shit, your bad actions, someone else's pain if you don't have to. You know, and it was, it, it, yeah, it was very direct. It's like, you're done. You don't deserve this human at your current state. And, you know, this was, this is a, a time where the truth isn't going to help anyone. I think one of the kindest things you could do sometimes is to just leave people alone. Yeah. Especially at the end of a relationship. There's too much trying to make it work or trying to be friends or trying to fix the past. I think the, some of the, sometimes just walking away giving a reason, walking away and just leaving them alone. Especially if there was chaos and pain and hurt and we don't get to make sense of everything. Sometimes you just have to leave and and let them be. I find that incredibly powerful yeah. and really hard to do. Really hard to do. Because it sucks. It sucks to feel like you've hurt somebody, to live with that guilt and to live with that shame. It's, I, yeah, I get it. I mean, the beautiful thing about being very open is you do have a sense of being seen, which I think is a feeling that a lot of us long for. You know, I think that's, you talk about like the epidemic of unsolicited dick pics, for instance, 
it's these to me it's like this poor sexually violent expression of people wanting to be seen you know like it is violence in my you know that is unacceptable on every single level you're you're violating someone but i think the root of it is we wear clothes all the time we wear clothes we wear push-up bras we wear you know these shields of our like naked selves emotionally and physically and how's it going great how you doing fine in all different areas and for me i know you know like when i've had consensual phone sex or video sex on the phone or even just the first time you see each other naked there is that feeling of like this is me and do you want to stick around <laughs> and so being seen is is beautiful there's like but there's a balance to it like us i think we're naturally lean towards overshare i want to get it all out of the way and then if you run you run <laughs> you know? but there's a level of couth too that that i need i need to be aware of that i shouldn't tell everyone everything about me on the first date man i'm with a new therapist now because i changed cities and uh and this is what we're talking about you know i i've had this thing i've been telling people on my podcast that i'm open to being open so i'm open to being in an open relationship i'm not non-monogamous but i'm open to it which means that my default is closed but i've been telling people this you know, and they go, so what are you looking for? Oh, you know, I'm just looking for someone that's open to being open. And I'm open to being open. And that that might scare people away. I imagine it scares more people. Yeah. Doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. And so, she, you know, she goes, is that really necessary to disclose on the first date? You know, you could be open to being open without making that a criteria for the you know, for, for this future potential partner. So what does open to being open mean? What's the value behind that? And can you just hold on to that value yourself? You don't need to disclose it. I mean, if somebody asks you point blank, you know, what are your thoughts on non-monogamy? That seems like an appropriate place to bring it up. Yeah. <laughs> and if someone said, have you ever done sex work? I might talk about the fact that I used to do sensual massage. But I don't need to bring it up in my story all the time. It's the difference between admitting and omitting. I like that. It's fear-based. It's like, I want, for me, I think it comes from being worried about abandonment. If you're going to run, I want you to run early. Yeah, run now. Yeah, run now. But I don't think that's necessarily the way to cultivating a great relationship. I don't know much, <laughs> I feel like, but I know that. I have a sense that me doing things out of fear is not going to lead to something great. I was talking to a woman yesterday about dating unavailable people and how that is also a defense mechanism. Yeah. Because if you know right off the bat that they're unavailable, then there's no fear that it's not going to work out because you already know it's not going to work out. So you don't have to protect your heart. You don't have to be scared of the fact that they might leave you and they might you know, stomp on your heart on the way out because it's not going to happen. It's very safe. Yeah. It's painful, but safe. It can be painful, yeah. but you'll know it's coming. Yeah. It's just a somewhere deep down. Yeah. It's a different kind of pain. Yeah. I asked, I asked you that on uh, free love advice Friday, which you do on, on Instagram. And, um, yeah, I loved it. I think you just said, if you're dating unavailable people, you're unavailable. You're unavailable. Yeah. 
that's why you're interested in unavailable people. And it all goes back to being seen. You know, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm like thinking of taking my clothes off for the first time in front of somebody and how incredibly vulnerable that is. Yeah. And I haven't done that actually in a while. Because I'm scared. The dude who gives free love advice. And he's a certified love advisor. <laughs> scared of getting naked in front of somebody. It's funny how things change like that. And one thing that you probably weren't afraid of five years ago, all of a sudden has become scary. Dude, I used to get so naked. <laughs> I used to get so naked too. Yeah. So naked all the time with everybody. And now, now I'm just less, it's, it's not that I'm scared. I'm just less interested in it. I, I wanted to be with someone that I can build intimacy with not surface level intimacy, not fake intimacy, but you know, real live vulnerability. And there's probably, I still have blocks. What is your big hope for yourself? And I know that you are um, dating again. What is your big hope for yourself for like just the, the next chapter of love in your own life? Not having such a defined idea of what I'm looking for and being more open to receiving a partner in whatever way that looks like. And not being so rigid, you know, I have this, I'm letting go of this list of what I want my ideal partner to look like. And that's a very constraining and limiting way of being in the world. You got to do all these things. You got to want to go rock climbing. You got to want to sleep in the back of my truck. You can't have any cats. You got to be funny. I got to be able to leave you uh, at a party and you'll be fine on your own. This is, this list is not, is, is just never ending. And that's a limiting way of, of, of saying, Hey, this is how you should love me. And this is what you should be in order to be with me. And I don't want that anymore. So letting go and accepting the fact that I don't really know what I need and just being okay with that and finding other ways of finding love in the, in the world. It doesn't have to be, you know, the society wants you to have a partner. You're successful when you're in, you're a couple and just letting go of that narrative and, and finding other ways of giving love and receiving love, familial love, platonic love, you know, love of, of work, of passion of work, of bikes. I mean, I know you're a tinker and a builder. I tinker. And a maker. Yeah, me too. And, uh, you know, that stuff is important to me. And so finding other ways of receiving love in the world and of giving love to the world, that's the next step for me. Yeah, you're bringing up stuff for me because I feel like I'm, there's just a part of me not ready to get hurt again. You know, there's just a part of me that like, I almost feel like something great could come across my plate and it'd still be, I still wouldn't be able to give my whole self because of that fear. What you've been talking about has been really hitting home with me because I have to take a look at my, my own list. My list is impossible to achieve. You basically have to be a celebrity, you know. It's like, another defense mechanism. It's another way to be unavailable. And right now during this period where, you know, I just, I think that I wouldn't want to date myself if I came across a woman who is exactly as available, as skittish, as unaware as I am, like, I probably would just be like, you're not ready. And so that's my journey is like, how do I find and give love, especially for somebody who loves to isolate? When I'm in a relationship, I love to just like 
doomsday prep with this person and like i end up you know drifting away from friends and like things that aren't good but like how do i share the love that i have and want to give i have a big heart and i want to be affectionate with people and it's a weird juxtaposition that i also withdraw and isolate and then i how do i get love from friends and give love and accept it as love even though it's not the same kind of love because it's easy to get love from people who love you and still feel like well i don't have romantic love yeah i want sexual love i want sexual love. <laughs> <laughs> rather it's like you know it's like needing to eat getting a bunch of food and being like well that's not what i wanted yeah i still want Cookies. Donuts. Donuts. Yeah. yeah. I love how we go to junk food. Yeah, totally. It's sugary junk food. The biggest question that I get when I give free love advice is where am I going to meet my partner, my person? When am I going to find when am I going to fall in love? Where can I find someone to fall in love with? And it's the hardest question to answer. It's it's impossible to answer. And it's it's heartbreaking to listen to. Because I have that same question, and I and I just pour myself into literature, and I and I try to figure out, you know, intellectually, I try to figure it out. And what I what I keep running up against is give love to receive love. Yeah. Focus more on your ability to to give than on your ability to receive. And Eric Fromm is a psychoanalyst, psychiatrist. Uh, German descent and he wrote a book called The Art of Loving and we are too concerned with finding love and less concerned with we should be more concerned with giving love because when you give you actually receive and it increases other people's capacity to give when you give they can give I mean we know this concept in recovery in recovery I'm gonna bleep it oh yeah in recovery. <laughs> beep. Beep. I got you. We we know that concept of giving love instead of receiving. Yeah. I mean it's a different skill to to work yeah. work into your own life though. And it's less and gratifying. It is less gratifying. I mean instantly gratifying. I think it it can build to something really gratifying. Like a beautiful life full of love. Well, it's a skill too. We're not we're not taught how to love. You know, our parents weren't that great at it. No, and we're—I mean, we 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 learned some lessons uh, from. Oh, oh, it's noon. It's noon in San Francisco on a Tuesday. <laughs> on a Tuesday, that's yeah. right. But Thursday too. No, only Tuesday. Tuesday at noon. Yeah, we have a bunch of shitty teachers, and I think they come in the form of rom coms, and they come in the form of—it's just like entrepreneurs who glorify their founding story and they turn it into some magical moment of like fuck that sorry i i hate that i hate when people turn their it's like i don't know as a romantic there's toxic romanticism that again leads me comparing myself to other people going well i'll never have that you know I'll never get that story. But anyway. Dude, we, we just don't see, we don't get a behind the look, the behind the scenes look at, at how much work it really is 
to maintain a loving relationship or to grow a successful company. We just don't see it. We see these uh, glorified rom-com versions of what it looks like to be in love. And it's absolutely not based in reality. And you're right. It's toxic and it's detrimental. It takes a lot of work to build, to build intimacy and connection and a relationship with somebody. But it's worth doing. I have to believe it. I'm such a romantic. I have to believe that, that it's, it's all worth it. I have to, too. I like to end this way. But if I could, this is my new favorite kind of visualization for it. If I could hand you my phone right now, and on the other end is either the the younger, no, actually, you know what, you were like, you weren't well to receive this message as a young man. But if on the other end of it, it is, is someone who just feels lost, romantically, creatively, any of the things that I think you're, you can really speak to. And you can just send them a little message of of a couple things you know to be true. That you know at least, hey, here's a couple anchors to hang on to while you go through the journey. What would you tell that person? It's okay not to have it all figured out. It's actually okay to, to not have much figured out. Because the older I get, the more I realize that I know I know less the older I get. And I always thought that I had to have it all figured out, that it had to be packaged and it had to look good for everybody else. Because that's what society values. They value success. They value the founder's story of, of you know, how they made it. But it's a lot more interesting to show people who you really are right now. It's okay to be heartbroken. I would take the heartbreak away if I could, but it's, it's valuable to be heartbroken and to not have it figured out and to just do the work, you know? I want to say every day, but it's okay to take a break also. (laughs) You know, especially when you're feeling fucking shitty, it's okay to fucking take a break and just feel that stuff and hunker down underneath the blankies and binge watch a show if that's what you need to do or it's, it's okay. We... We're just not used to seeing people sad or depressed or unhappy. Or unsure. Yeah, or unsure. But everybody has it. We just don't show it. It's okay. Thanks for coming here. Thanks for having me. Hey, lovebirds. That is the How to Human episode with Sam Lamott interviewing me, your host of the Love Drive podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can find Sam at hellohumans.co. You can also download his podcast on your favorite podcast app. It's the How to Human podcast. Let's just say that word one more time. Podcast, podcast. And I am no longer a certified love advisor. I am now a certified love coach. And if you are struggling with your sex and your love life and you want some shame-free 
love-filled coaching to help you figure out where you're at, where do you want to go, and how are you going to get there, then send me an email. And let's get on the phone to find out if coaching is right for you. That's sean at thelovedrive.com, S-H-A-U-N. And also, if you have anything else that you want to comment on, send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. I try to get back to as many people as possible. And thank you for spending this time with me. And I hope that you now understand a little bit more about my journey and how I got to be doing what I do and why I do what I do. Thank you and have a beautiful week.